Welcome to the Blooming League of Original Podcast. G'day and welcome to another special edition of Thrush and Treasure, the Torture Chamber musical comedy podcast where musical angels battle it out every week against the devils of metal. And speaking of week, I'm Aaron. Oh. And if this guy isn't coconutting a lamington, he's tenderizing his muffins because he's Evan, the metal man. How's it going? Hey, how you going? Yeah, good. Thank you. How was your week? Busy. Oh, Busy? I, yeah. Um, oh, hardcore. Again. Anyways. <laughs> Guess what? What? We have another West End diva in the studio today, and he's here to make me feel utterly inadequate because this leading Lothario is a painfully talented actor, singer, writer, composer, and highly skilled skier whose stints in The Phantom of the Opera left the ladies saying, Rowl, as well as unmasking a stellar career that has seen him make it count as Carl Magnus in A Little Night Music, where he heard the sound of music as Rolf, which helped him reminisce about the last five years, and that no doubt gave him that sinking feeling for his role in Titanic the Musical before trying on his Aussie accent or Struth Elsa for On the Town at the Royal Albert Hall for the BBC proms. And yet he somehow agreed to come on this show. Huh. Which is awesome and not at all intimidating. (laughs) With dashing good looks and a unique voice as a writer and composer of two groundbreaking Middle Easterly musicals, The Wing Breaking Broken Wings, plus today's breakout chosen musical with his collaborator Dana Alfadan. This artist's personality shines through, making him one of the hottest, as in the most sought-after, talents on the West End, and one of the tastiest after his acclaimed role of potential meat pie Anthony in Sweeney Todd. So please give the warmest, most Aussiest g'day to the hottest superstar, as in the most prettiest, to come out of the West End since, well, the last hottie superstar we had on this show. Shout out to Hadley. Men want to be him. Women want to be with him. And children want to yodel like him. It's Nadim. Naman, how are you going? Oh, I'm, 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 in, I'm in awe of that introduction. That's the best introduction I've ever had in my life. Thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm good. I'm good. I'm really, really well, thanks. I'm, I'm uh, very happy to be on the show and doing something uh, different and, and talking with you guys it's going to be great fun an actor doing something different as in talking about themselves i'm sure <laughs> anyways uh, how, uh, did i pronounce your name right because i know we spoke about it before you did you pronounced it brilliantly and you're a legend for checking because not many people not many people do that so thank you yeah uh now you've just done the london marathon yes and um i'm tired just thinking about it but I did wear a T-shirt in your honour. It's Snoopy <laughs> asleep on his kennel. If we can say that, it says flat out. How are your legs feeling today? They're they're not too bad, thanks. Um, not too bad. Yeah. yeah. The the marathon the marathon is is something I've done a few times, but this is the first time I've done it off the back of a pandemic where I didn't have much else to do other than go running and get mm-hmm. out of the house to do that. So. I actually trained properly this time um, rather than trying to squeeze it in with work and, and life um, yep. because because we had all the free time in the world. So, yeah, not too bad. Thanks. Yep. Well, like I asked the last guest, why? <laughs> um, <laughs> do you know what? That's a question I get asked all the time. It's an accumulative thing. You start off by going for a 5K. No, no. Five minute. Five, five minute. Oh, yeah. The, the, <laughs> go for a walk. Whatever. <laughs> go for a walk. Go on, a, go on your bike. And you just gradually build, and it's something that takes like five or six years 
but it but it's for me it's been you know without wishing to be too deep for, or anything for me running has been a really good mental health thing it's been a really good like my time out alone music on thoughts just like personal space um and that's enjoyable because there's not much else of that on offer uh, yeah. in this world uh, especially not when you're a parent as well so yeah. Yes. Now, as I mentioned in your introduction, you are dashingly good-looking. You are septuply talented in all areas that I, I believe. Maybe dancing, I didn't quite see as much on your resume. Um, skiing, yeah. I saw. Fencing, I didn't see, which I was surprised because I thought every actor was meant to have fencing on their resume. You know what? I've never had to learn how to fence. Uh all ride a horse yet so I feel like a bit of a fraud uh, all of a sudden but yeah I need to get those two things going if I want to end up on Netflix I'm sure so yeah, yeah. projects for next year exactly yeah that's no more running fence and for the children at home <laughs> fencing is not some slang term nor it is an app it is sword fighting with the kids called LARPing these days I believe live action role play yeah yeah speaking of nerds we'll move on to metal <laughs> have you had any experience with heavy metal I wouldn't say I've had that much experience with heavy metal I was a huge fan as a teenager of what I would probably call more classic rock and punk rock and new new metal that my favorite album as a teenager was Hybrid Theory by Linkin Park. And that got me into guitar music. And it was all the cliche stuff as a team, you know, the offspring, um, Americana. And then I got more into sort of looking up Metallica, ACDC. Yeah. And I did all that cliche teen stuff, which was fantastic. And I and I and I still love listening to all those albums. But I've never I've never gone as sort of heavy metal as the album we're looking at today. <laughs> so that was really fun to, to listen to that well you're lucky you kept talking after you said Linkin Park because this show's programmed to roll the credits as soon as that band's mentioned <laughs> <laughs> I did say it was cliche yeah but they're not that bad come on um okay I'm sure uh, the Jamelia cover of Numb that she did on Radio One's Live Lounge that was magnificent but anyway so we'll move on to the metal album because this week evan you chose metal popocalypses <laughs> the Deathal bum <laughs> on spotify and yeah on spotify thank you very much <laughs> no it's the fictional band death clock uh with their album death album from the tv show metalocalypse oh clock yeah death clock as in there's an there's an owl in it Okay. Yeah, there's actually a thing. Death clocks were way back in the day, they used to use mercury for the numbers. And the people who made the clocks obviously died from mercury poisoning. Oh, wow. So there's this series of clocks called death clocks. It's an actual thing. Oh, wow. Why didn't I do my research yeah. on that? I would have got lost in for hours. Instead, I was bloody writing a rom-com. <laughs> have you ever tried writing a romantic comedy, a Christmas romantic comedy, while you're single, stuck in lockdown? I do not recommend it. Maybe I should start running. Is it too late to insert a death clock in the story? No. Could you, could you shoot on that in? <laughs> no, I'm only on my second draft, so. Okay, you never know. <laughs> Anyways. I wrote a review. Would we like to hear it? Yes. Yes, we would. Alrighty. When I first saw the cover, I recognized the name from the hit animated show, which I never watched on account of having taste. But I was excited to hear a cartoon band and I looked forward to some fun. So I pressed play on the Spotify device, except fun, this was not. Whatever happened to Josie and the Pussycats, Gem and the Holograms, Barbie and the Rockers? Uh-oh, I said her name. I twitch imminent. I admit that I was impressed by the balls of Deathcock's creator, 
But that's not surprising since Brendan Small begins with a B and ends in all. The Death of Bum was not for me, no matter how genuine this novelty band sounded. It was all just go, 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 go. And I hear that enough from my dad. So I've got the Cali Nallies. I'm in a dilemma. The Death of Bum didn't sound slapped together, which was impressive, but it also slapped me around and that's not cool. Any more of this go, 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 go nonsense and I might have to pull out the Gilbert and Sullivan. I'm warning you, Evan. Two stars. And that's for not living down to the novelty band name. They were actually... They, they seemed like a real band. But to translate my review for the band, go, 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 two stars. <laughs> yeah. Nice. Uh, not for me. This was not for me, but I was impressed. I didn't think you were going to be a fan <laughs> at all. When I recognised what it was, I had that moment of, oh, okay, sure. Are they any good, though? Like, as in, are they... Uh, what's the difference? The difference between the Beatles and the Monkeys, let's just say. <laughs> yeah, that's a really good analogy, actually. Well, the Monkeys, all due respect, have some yeah. really good songs and have lived on in their own right. But we're also characters who didn't play their instruments. Yeah, true. So, yeah. I could have said Millie Vanilli, but one of them died tragically. Yeah. So you get well, you can nearly say the Gorillas, but I mean they do play their instruments and are a real band. Oh yeah, they're a cartoon band. They are a cartoon band. Yeah. I should have gone with them, not mm. Barbie and the fucking Rockers. I think. I still got that on cassette tape from when I was a little soon-to-be gay kid. Uh, yeah, so I don't know. I, I I would watch the cartoon, but I think I would mentally switch off during the musical numbers, unlike something like Glee, which was an education in what's on the radio at the moment, which I don't know what's on the radio. At the moment, I get that from Drag Race. So, yeah. Yeah, it was. it's a show first, and yeah. this is just the music for the show. Now, I didn't mm. understand any of the words. Just quickly, we'll get to Nadim's thoughts. <laughs> you don't want to read the lyrics. Didn't understand a single bloody word, but apparently they were quite satirical. And I would want to read the lyrics when I, I have more of a chance, even though the, the interview got pushed back a week. And I did actually have extra time. But as I say, I wrote a fucking screenplay in five days, which sort of come out of nowhere. Like, oh, let's write this. Okay. Um, because it's an, a an adult animated writer. Right, and a writer of adult animation, that's why I'd be interested because they have a very satirical mind, a very intelligent look at shows like Rick and Morty, Family Guy, even The Simpsons. Look at The Muppets. They're not animated, but yeah. they are cartoonish. Um, that's yeah, this my is, sense this of humour. This is entirely satire and meant to be making fun of death metal bands. And it's, it's a case of what if... A death metal band oh, was a bunch of incredibly talented 12-year-olds, basically. It's juvenile, it's vulgar, um, it's disgusting, um, but the the musicianship is just world-class. Yeah. He's they... just one of the best guitarists around, and good God can he play. It, he is incredible. Yeah. Now, Tim, what did you think? As our guest, Evan's last point there is, is my was my main takeaway from from it. The level of, of production and musicianship is literally off the scale, and I couldn't quite believe the detail and the, and the the layering of everything that was going on from a, from a taste point of view. I totally got I totally got into it because I I understood very early on that it was, it's a genre thing. It's it is uh, tongue in cheek. It's um, a send-up of a genre, and I enjoy that as a as a theatre worker. That genre is a thing for us, you know. You're throwing yourself into a world of 
even if it's a world you don't particularly like or understand or have much knowledge of, you can immerse yourself in something and, and appreciate the, the detail that's gone into it. And it was excellent on, on it was excellent whilst running. I yeah. do think it back to what we talked about earlier because it's got so much energy and so much drive. The one thing that it, that I would have loved was just a shit hot vocal soaring over the top at various points because mm. because I what I love personally is the combination of metal and really heavy guitar and really thick drum beats and someone who can just pierce you with a vocal over the top and a whole album of uh, <laughs> to do your wonderful impression that 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 all that's that's all it was missing for me and I would have totally bought into it and would probably listen to it again if it had that going over the top. But, but yep. um, what, Evan's, what Evan was saying about the guitar playing is, I mean, that's where the melody comes from on this whole record. And it's insane. There was one song in particular that really made me smile. Is it called Fan Song? Yeah. Uh, yeah, where it, just in case anyone hasn't realized that it's pastiche, it's literally like um, this, you know, as fans, you don't just give us some, a reason to play music, you give us something to hate and we hate you. So yeah. thanks, guys. Uh, and I just I really I really enjoyed that. And, and it really sort of made made it crystal clear what the point was of this of this album. And uh, yeah, like, listen, it's not something that I will be listening to very much of because it's, it just doesn't suit my tastes. But as someone who likes making records and likes writing with people who are talented at their specific genre, like this guy is a genius. Um, and I'd love to I'd love to know more about what other music he's written. And um, it's sort of, yeah made me want to know a bit about him yeah i i think i agree with both of you that's why i I made a point that this band like could just be a novelty they really could but they're not they they've taken it seriously um and i didn't get the tongue-in-cheek that they were poking fun of metal bands from it because it just seemed so angry to me but two things we hear a lot on this show is that our guests listen to the metal while they're running. Okay. Right. That's a common thing. And the second thing we hear a lot is that they probably won't listen to it again. <laughs> so uh, that's not surprising. But I, I think for that, I'll give it a, a two and a half. Boost it up. I'll boost it up, uh, up a little bit because I, I was actually expecting Evan to say, what the hell, man, this is terrible. Why would I choose a terrible album? Why not? We're at war. <laughs> No, I didn't. Inter- okay. All right. So I'm going to do my bit. Full disclosure. I had yeah. no idea what Rumi was when I chose this album because it's turned out like the exact opposite. You know, it's I've basically made Nadim listen to devil music. <laughs> I have been giggling about that all week. Um, <laughs> you know, once I realized what was going on, I was like, oh, oh no. Oh, geez. I hope I don't offend him. Cause... No, you haven't offended me. I do warn guests, kind of. <laughs> I don't know if I would have chosen something else if you know if I had have done my research first. I don't know, but yeah, I love this album. This is just something like I said. I I love the cartoon. You know, I've watched all of it. This is so. Yeah, this came out in two thousand and seven, and it's all the brainchild of Brendan Small. Mm-hmm. He was working on a show called Home Movies for the Cartoon Network. Their late night programming called Adult Swim. You know, doing like after yep. dark, after midnight, putting on, you know, more adult content. Where all the good stuff um, is. Yeah, at the time, Dr. Katz was on, was very popular. Cartoon Network looking for new shows. Um, he established his ability to write for characters in an episodic show. 
And he approached them with the idea and goes, I've, I've got an idea for a show about an extreme metal band. And they just said, yeah, sure, have 20 episodes. Yeah, with no idea what he had. He didn't have anything. And he's like, oh, I'd better go away and make something then. Hmm. And so, we, yeah, started writing. He went, right. He had this idea that for every episode, there's going to be a new song. Mm-hmm. And he goes, all right, I need Good. to write 20 yeah. songs. I need to sit down. And so off he went, sat in a room, you know, in his little studio and, and started banging away and this album is the result. So yeah, and Metalocalypse is basically a family show. It's your basic sitcom family. There's a mum, a dad, a kids. It's your typical sitcom on top of being juvenile, vulgar, and incredibly violent. The term is nuclear family. Yeah, but yeah, you wanted the music to stand alone from the show. And um, uh, eventually they've done, I think four seasons, which has now got four albums. And then they finished it. Funnily enough, you were saying you would like to hear what else he's done. Instead of doing a fifth season, he went, let's write a musical. Oh, wow. It's called the Doomstar Requiem, a Metalocalypse musical. There is another metal album, another metal musical, basically, although it's not staged. It is, you know, on screen. Someone could just take that on screen and put it on stage. So we've, you know, we've often said is there metal musicals. This is technically another one. And I nearly chose the musical version. But no, I, I always love this album just in general. Yeah, it's so well produced. Uh, it's so crisp and clean. And I think that's because of the way he recorded it, just him in a room, you know, layering. You know, you, there's no bleed over in the recordings from different instruments. It's just, you know, perfectly crisp. And I think that's what I love about it. But yeah, this is a parody album written to sound like it was written by a bunch of 12-year-olds. And when you've got song titles like Mermaider, Bloodrecuted, Thunder Horse, Hatred Copter. You know, it's meant to be ridiculous. And yeah, I mentioned how the, yeah, the drums aren't real. Yeah, I, I love it. I, I love this album. I really do. I've kept, I got to listen to this because we delayed our recording uh, by a week or two. And, and I got to yeah. listen to this so many times. Happy to. I'm happy for you. I really am. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, he, yeah, he studied the Berkeley. Oh, this, yeah. Brendan Small is an incredibly talented dude. Um, he studied at the Berkeley School of Music. He took comedy writing classes, freaking screenwriting classes. And out of college, he went and interned at a jingle writing company where we learnt, you know, how to turn out music quickly. You know, these guys have an afternoon to bang out a jingle. Um, and he got to know the tricks of, you know, this guy uses this, these chords and that guy uses those chords and those harmonies and will reuse them in just different ways. And they'll just, they'll just bang out music, you know, day after day. So he was able to turn over this album really quite quickly. Um, and it was his first attempt at actually writing an album. Nice. This is his first effort. For That's God's really sake. impressive. You know, um, he's, yeah, he's gone on to play with everyone, you know, Steve Vise, Joe Satriani's. Oh, everyone. Just, I know everybody. those guys. <laughs> all the all the big guitar legends. Um, yeah. And he actually got um, a, a major coincidence was Metallica basically rang Cartoon Network before the show had even existed and said, we want to do voices on cartoons. So they feature um, not just Metallica, but uh, I think dude from Queensryche, uh, King Diamond. Um, they all do little voice parts throughout the series, oh, cool. which which gave it, you know, a good good metal credit on top of the music he'd done. Okay, we'll check it out. Yeah, it's a very niche comedy show. You know, like I said, it's violent, it's vulgar, it's disgusting. Um, and death metal orientated. Uh, yeah, it's a certain uh, specific audience it's going for. Yeah, yeah well, quite a narrow audience. That's fine. <laughs> I've uh, yeah, 
I don't know. There was just, look, you know what it was? It was just too much repetition. As Nadim says, if there was some clean singing over or un- underlaid with or alternating with okay. the unclean vocals, the gra 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 gra, then... Remember, it is a it is a parody and, and he sat down to sort of go, this is, not only is this a parody of a death metal band, this is what a lot of people think that's, a death metal band sounds that like. Is yeah, nothing. Weird, Weird Al Yankovic does parody songs and they each sound different from each other. They just happen to sound exactly like the songs they are parodying. That is a very good point about, you know, if you were to sort of give a, a cliche of a vocal style to someone who doesn't like death mm. metal, mm. they would do what we've been doing all morning and go, rah, 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 rah. Yeah. Um, but then there are so many great metal bands who have got incredible vocalists yeah. as well. Exactly. Mm. Yeah. And, and Brendan is not a singer. He's a growler. He's many things, but he, he's not a singer. <laughs> Yeah, so this worked well. Yeah, he's just put effects yeah. on it and off you go. Yeah. So would you, would you give it a score out of five, Nadim? I, I'd, I'd give, give it a three out of five. Yeah. Three out of five? Yeah, that's, three. that's not too bad. Um, I don't know why I'm writing it down. We don't keep <laughs> tally. Uh, anyways, I think the Metal Popocalypse has ended and we shall pick up the pieces after these messages. This summer, winter, spring, or fall, the first ever musical theater sitcom where you go behind the scenes of the latest West End show, The Fosse Forest Ballet. Where's the important stuff? Aha! A thousand pound a week ensemble rate. Ah, that's what Mamma Mia likes. Starring Philip Joel and a West End cast featuring Carrie Alice, Darren Denny, Louise Demon, and Oliver Savile, and more. It all started in 1987 when I was a jobbing actress working in a diner. Yeah, it's just I, I had a really bad experience when I was touring Australia with a wombat. <gasps> Darling! How long have I been mentoring you? Three months? Two years. So her name is Henrietta? The horse. Yes. I've managed to secure you an audition for the biggest, most innovative, and the latest show to be going into the West End. Joseph and his Technicolor Dreamcoat. Think more along the lines of Pant. Frozen. Watch this episode for the price of a coffee. Simply go to www.thefussyforestbelly.com. Any and all profits go back to theater charities, acting for others, and the theater's trust. You'll laugh, you'll cry, and you'll see a grown man in sparkly tights. Tight nights. Nice tights. You're listening to Thrash and Treasure. I'm Aaron. That's Evan. And we're joined by the West End's Nadim Naman. Now, as I said before, you are a septuple threat and my new mortal enemy. That's all. There's no question. So uh, before we get to Rumi, uh, yourself and your co-writer Dana Al-Fadan wrote Broken Wings together previously. And in Melbourne, we have a very, very large Middle Eastern community. Are there any hopes for a production in the post-COVID future to come over this side of the world, the ass end of the world, as I like to call it? There are, I mean, listen, funnily enough, before COVID, we were actually in talks about a, a production in Melbourne. Yeah. Um, Melbourne specifically, because there are so many Lebanese people there. Um, and there was a Gibran exhibition there, I think, in 2020. And uh, the curator of that exhibition 
is a guy that we know quite well. His name is Glenn Kalem, and he is a uh, Australian-based Lebanese guy who's sort of one of the foremost Chibran experts in the world. And he he came to see yeah. our show in London, and we tried so hard to make it happen uh, at the Melbourne International Festival, and it was sort of brewing, and then COVID COVID arrived. So it, I think it, it's something we'd love to revisit in the future for sure. I, I personally yeah. would love to come and work in Australia. I um I've never been, and it's something that needs to be rectified. Please do. I would. I'm going to be there opening night at your invitation. I hope. <laughs> but I finally. Uh, this is great because. Like, I'm joking about the whole feeling inadequate thing. Um, well, kind of. 50% joking. Um, but I have found something that I have done that you haven't done, and I made my professional debut in Melbourne at the Melbourne International Festival 22-something years ago, 21 years ago. There you go. So there we go. Oh, my God, I don't feel so crap about myself. <laughs> uh, yes, no, please. Uh, I grew up with a lot of Lebanese kids because uh, in the 90s, like, we're, we're only a few months apart So I'm April 85 mm. um at the time there was a lot of immigration or refugees more so than yeah. immigration that came over so they were my friends at school like that was Amazing. who i grew up with and, and around and a lot of vietnamese as well and and filipino and along the, the years pick up little bits of the language and then butcher them in front of them when i visit those countries <laughs> uh, yes okay so you said previously that yourself and dana gravitated towards each other uh, could you tell our listeners about your process uh, before we get into Rumi? Yeah. um and how does working in a duo help combat writer's block and what happens when both of you get it do you just want to scream out the window <laughs> um do you know what writing uh writing in a duo is is so great because it immediately it immediately gives your music a voice that you are not capable of as an individual yeah. you find a sound you find a style um and you're able to tell stories in a way that you would never have come up with on your own and so th there's something there's mm -hmm. something really great about that process particularly with a musical yeah. way you're you're writing in order to tell a story and build a sound world of a specific location and time and all of that kind of shared experience i think really helps build that it's not like writing an album uh, a pop album or a rock album or whatever of songs that are expressing your own personal point of view uh, which i think it can be a very private yeah. process so so i think that writing as a team has been really helpful for us and it's made things really efficient the way we approach it is with broken wings it, it's easier to describe because that's how we fell into our process kind of by mistake because it was the first one we did broken wings takes place mm -hmm. over two parallel timelines um, you have Khalil Gibran um, in his early 40s, which is the end of his tragically young life. He, he lived in New York City, uh, where he became a famous writer. Um, so that's one mm -hmm. timeline. And then you have the timeline of him as a teenager in Lebanon. Um, and we, we decided to like split those two up thematically and to be composed with slightly different sounds to reflect the Middle Eastern world and the New World of America. And so I went away and wrote all the uh, 1923 New York world and Dana went away and wrote the songs from uh, his teenage years in, in the Middle East. And we came back and we had seven songs each. We had 14 songs and then we had a lot of fun creating the rest of the show by reprising those and mashing them together and fusing it all up. And then we had one orchestrator orchestrate the whole thing to give it that unified sound. Mm -hmm. um, so, so if you listen to yeah. the album, you hopefully wouldn't be able to tell uh, that, oh, that song's clearly by one composer and that's clearly by another. Um, 
And that process was yeah. so much fun and we enjoyed it so much that we sort of just replicated that with Rumi and there are, there's no parallel timelines with Rumi, but we just sat down at the beginning when we had our skeleton of the plot and, the, and where the songs would come. And we sort of said, well, why don't you write those seven? And I wrote those seven. And then let's get together and see where we are. And then we, we then wrote two or three at the piano, piano side by side this time um, because she happened to be in London for some of COVID um, in lockdown. And um, that was mm -hmm. that was great. We were able to write in the same city for the first time rather than via <laughs> this yeah. uh, Zoom and FaceTime and WhatsApp yeah. and whatever else. So, uh, yeah. So yeah. it's sort of something we've just fallen into um, and, and we, we like how it, we like how it works. Saves time as well. You know, cool. you can write a score in in two years that might otherwise take four or five, I guess, because um, there's two of you at the same time. That's it. Oh, look, some things take years and years to write. I wrote novels that took 14 years. <laughs> uh, yeah, so we're talking about Rumi uh, today, the musical, which was your second collaboration together. Now, Evan, you are our metal man, so you dived into this world this week. Big time. So you can take the mic. Yeah. As I said before, I hadn't, I hadn't heard of Rumi um, as a person. Well, that's racist. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> like I said, I've got I got Prince of Persia playing in the background. I'm not even sure if that is. Perfect. It's one of my that's my one of my favorite games from childhood, so it's all good. So, yeah. Oh, is that oh there you Love go. Doing, all good. <laughs> Fantastic. I just remember falling off. But yeah, I had okay, my normal process is like I'll listen to this album, you'll give me something and I'll just listen to it blind. I have no idea what it is, who it's by. Um, I listened to it a couple of times and I'm sitting there going, okay, I need to know what this is about. And of course, you know, you're not up yet. What are you, the 23rd and 24th yeah, of November right. is, is your opening date. Yeah. So there's not a lot of information on the plot, but turns out it didn't need to be because I then started going, well, who's Rumi? And that went down a massive rabbit hole. I've been researching my ass off. <laughs> I just find it fascinating. So... Yeah, Rumi is a 13th century Persian poet, but more than that, he's he's a beloved scholar, teacher, just an all-round wise man of God. And his writings translated really well into the Western society in their themes. So he's hugely popular um, and in, you know, in Turkey and, and you know, he's kind of borderless because he's a little bit of Afghanistan, a little bit of Turkey, a little bit of Iran, Iraq. He's kind of everywhere. And, and he's just, uh, it's really hard well, it's easy to understate just how revered, beloved a scholar he was or is. Yeah, so, and, and he's all about finding God within oneself and, you know, that everything that exists is within you and, and all our, what is it, our souls are all pieces of God and that when we die, our essence returns to God. That led me down to the whirling dervishes who dance the Sema. And I was lucky enough to find there's a full documentary of not just like the touristy version, there's the full ceremony and there was a great voiceover explaining what's going on and why and, you know, the symbolism of the hats and their cloaks and their rotations around the circle and the three rotations being the three states of man you have to go through to become a perfect man. And I, I ended up watching documentaries. I've spent hours and hours and hours going into Rumi and why he was so popular and then then it's not just his writings and his poetry then I had to go into like okay what is this actually about it's, it seems to be the life of Rumi and his friendship with Sherms and there's a lot of 
conjecture or at least undecided what really happened to Sherms. Yeah. And I was wondering where your musical takes that or if it addresses it at all. Some of them, or there's like... are we spoiling it for the audience that are No, paying... I don't want to do spoilers, but there's like three, there's three schools of thought. One is where he just, he, he left in order to advance Rumi as a person because there was a duality and the only duality there should be is between you and God. And, you know, Rumi was just nearly infatuated with Sherms to a point where it was, it was stifling his own spiritual advancement. So he left, you know, in order to free Rumi from that duality. There's also another theory that, which I don't really agree with, that his Rumi's followers were jealous of their friendship and had Sherms removed somehow. And then I saw uh, there was another story where it kind of suggested both doesn't seem to be a consensus on what happened to Sherms, whether he left as a, on purpose or was removed. But yeah, Rumi was devastated by the, the loss of Sherms. They were only together like 16 months. And all he knew was that Sherms had, had left and gone to Damascus. And Rumi traveled from Konya about four times, staying for months at a time, searching for Sherms. And as far as we know, never found him. But uh, yeah, it kind of, he achieved that separation to be able to further his own, you know, spiritual knowledge and, and reflected in his writings. And he's, you know, he wrote some of the, the, the greatest things to come out of, uh, of that region of the world, even today. And one of his most famous quotes is, what was it? Yesterday I was clever, so I wanted to change the world. Today I'm wise, so I'm changing myself. And that is really all what he's about is everything that you are or everything that you want to be, you already are within yourself. He was big on celebrating God through song and dance. And by, I think, writing a musical about his life, you've certainly furthered that idea. You hear that, composers? When I die, that's what you've got to do is write a musical about my <laughs> life because that's how I live it. Anyways, sorry, Evan. <laughs> but yeah, the music itself. Um, yeah, I'm not going to try and pronounce Rumi's name. That's beyond me. You don't want to look white? <laughs> no. <laughs> I would. His full name is really a mouthful. Uh, was it Mavlana? Is is the other one? He, he's got many, many names. Yeah, that's like the um, Maulana is like uh, is like mm. literally translated as uh, spiritual leader. Mm. Uh, and I think yeah, I think it's still used in uh, Persian region and uh, the Middle East and South and even South mm. Asia as well in Indian communities and which is a reflection of how far this kind of spiritual branch, branch of religion spread across the Middle East and Asia. But yeah, his, his, his full name, I mean, he's referred to by so many different people as so many different things. And I think that links back to what you were saying, Evan, about how all of these countries that he was affiliated with all want to claim him. Yes. So yeah. Turks will tell you he's Turkish and that it's outrageous for calling him Iranian and Iranians will do the same and, and Afghans will do the same. And the, the irony being that the whole point of Rumi is that he transcends and what he believes in transcends borders and religions mm. and he's been accepted by the world basically and yet you still have people sort of sort of fighting in a sectarian way over ownership of him yeah. which is a shame because it sort of misses the point completely yeah yeah it's completely yeah. against uh yeah. any of the teachings really yeah yeah we used to do that with mel gibson and then he kind of did what he did <laughs> so yeah. america can have him Anyways, oh, what was I going to say? So yeah, the anyway, listening to the album itself, exactly like you were saying, it does all feel like it was written by one person. You know, that cool. 
there's no separation. I wouldn't have guessed that it was two separate people writing separate songs and then mashing them together. The standout tracks, when? I think track three? Four or five. Five. Yeah, I love when for some reason. It just, it's just got that big orchestra feels. Uh, I think it's the key changes and the, the progression. It just, it, mm -hmm. it just gets you. I don't know. It really just does. Yeah, and, 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 and unfortunately, I think the only bit of flute in it, or certainly the only sort of flute solo, because the, again, the flute is very significant in the dance of the Sema, at least um mm -hmm. the flute being a representation of a uh, human what is it man is like the cut reed where man blows their breath through the flute to create a noise we are the flutes to god's breath and if a perfect man was to play his flute once achieving being a perfect man if he was to play his flute then the sound would be as the sound of god yeah the flute is quite a, a main instrument with the whole thing so I, yeah i would have liked to have heard a bit more flute throughout the whole show it's a really really interesting really interesting point you made if you ever if you ever do go back and listen to it again what we have instead of the, the flute that as we know the flute is we have a persian instrument called a nai which is a sort of medieval wooden flute right. if you listen to the overture uh, it, it's like in the first 20 seconds of the show of the whole album that's the soloing uh, oh, instrument sad. in the background. So if you hear, so no, 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 it's, it doesn't sound like a flute. It could be anything right. else. Uh, it doesn't sound like a, mod a modern flute. So I don't, I'm not, I'm not, um, I'm not saying you're absolutely right. When is one of the times where we only hear like a classical flute, um, which is yeah. uh, supposed to bring out the youthful quality of the young, the young lovers. But if you go back and hear that sound and go, okay, so that's a nay, that's a wooden flute, and that's allegedly the, the instrument that Rumi himself played, you'll then hear that loads through the show, and you'll and you'll be like, oh, okay, I now I now get why that's there. Um, so you're you're absolutely right in your observation that there is a sort of there's an another instrument that's doing what you want the flute to do your criticism is null and void evan but it was a very astute point it's not no it's astute i know i know and i am very impressed with how much research he does yeah it's really great your your your, your points are amazing um yeah well it was kind of after i'd done all my research on Rumi, and well I don't think you could ever be done. That's the whole yeah. point. You know, one of the one of the states of being is to knowledge is to learn all you can know and, and not, you know, what you can't know because that's unknown. Now I'm confused. <laughs> Go Rumi. <laughs> uh, Freedom Waits is another great song. That one really stands out. It's like the big, it's a big standalone single for some reason. I wrote that down. Um, and the other one, uh, yeah, Germ's Departure. What a song. That's, that's great. That's, that's just brilliant. It's it's tough when there's no yeah. visual in a musical when you you know this thing isn't on stage yet and I know you've seen it but you know there's I, I don't know if you've snuck in any whirling any whirling dervishes um, I don't know if you're allowed to aren't they fireworks or are they lollies from Harry Potter uh, <laughs> they, they might be a type of they might be a type of firework yeah that's what I I, I know them from or it's a ride in Roller Coaster Tycoon <laughs> what a game. Oh, I know, right? <laughs> the the interesting Evan, the really interesting thing about what you've just said um, is that the idea of this show is that it examines the moment in Rumi's life. It's kind it's kind of an origin story of sorts. It examines the moment in his life where he makes the switch from being a regular teacher, normal man of society, living a, the equivalent of a nine to five, through his friendship with Shams becomes the man who goes on to become a poet and philosopher for the rest of his life and the, the same applies to the to the, the whirling 
so the idea is what we see in this show in the dance side of it is him and his followers coming up with what then becomes the whirling dervish yeah so it's it's the, the sort of the, the the origins of the summer so it's not the polished refined thing that the tourists see it's like them exploring the idea of twirling to let the soul levitate and have a closer connection to god mm. and more of an outer body experience so it's like a kind of it's a more raw and earthy version of the whirling that becomes more and more enhanced as the show progresses and they do it more often yeah the, the like the dance of the semmer was was developed after his death yeah exactly yeah i think it was uh, basically because what is it all all life and all things revolve around the sun and God is, he didn't, he doesn't say God is the sun. He's saying God is like the sun where, you know, all yeah. people and all things revolve and gravitate around the sun. So, you know, that is basically why they, why they turn. They're there, yeah. you know, rotating around God. Um, the, um, the other thing that's really interesting is that Shams, the name, the name literally means sun. Oh. So that adds a whole, that adds a whole new layer to his poetry. Um, so sometimes you read it and you're like, is he talking about the sun in the sky or is he talking about the man who changed his life or both? And that's the beauty of it. That's the beauty of this, uh, this friendship, this extraordinary friendship. Very cool. Very cool. But yeah, I've, I've spent many hours, yeah, learning all I can know and, and not learning what's mm -hmm. unknown. You make this show look good, Evan. Yeah. I'm really impressed, Evan. No, I found it fascinating. It was this thing that I'd never heard of and never seen. And I'm, you know, and you, once you do a bit of research, you stumble upon the whirling dervishes and, and, and like I said, sitting down and watching the full, it was like hour or so ceremony. And I'm sitting there going, I mean, initially, I think what appeals to the Western society is the pure fascination of how are they not falling over? Yeah. How are they not bumping into each other? Yeah. And, and they, they'll do their, you know, there's like four stages of it and in between greetings and, you know, throwing off their, their shrouds and burying their ego and, and it's like, oh my God, they're, they're spinning again. Oh, mm. surely they're done. No, they're off again. It's like, how are these guys not giving themselves an aneurysm or something? I don't know what happens when you continually yeah. spin. It must take a hell of a lot of practice. You do get used to it. <laughs> you get yeah. used to it. You too. Yeah, well, that's the whole point, you know, and that's their way of achieving whether you want to say Ivana or Nirvana or I think they, they call it ecstasy, just, you know, becoming maybe not uh, closer to God, but certainly, what is it, opening the door part way. Absolutely. Uh, but yeah, beside the point, the music, yeah, um, I can't wait to see this. Or, or if if it ever came up that I could somehow end up in London to see it or, or if it, if it travelled, I don't know what kind of yeah. staging you've got. Well, they're doing a concert version first. Concert version oh, okay. first. Is that in the hope that backers come? Yeah, I mean, it's we call it, we call it we call it concert version, but the reality is that it's it's at least like semi-staged. Oh, good. Yeah, we are not staging it, uh, like a traditional musical with the orchestra in the pit um, yeah. and huge set pieces and moving sets that changes. Um, we we are doing with the orchestra on stage. Uh, there is a design. There will be costume. There will be dance. But essentially, mm -hmm. it's a orchestra on stage with a playing space in front and we tell the story just using people um, rather than some of the other big devices that might get used in musical theatre and the idea yeah. is exactly as you said to to sort of put it in the shop window and say we've written this piece and this is an idea of the world that it belongs in but we are hoping that uh, full-time producers who who might have an idea of how they would like to see it staged then come to the table and say we're interested in this piece can we develop it further can we take it here can we take it there so it's like a 
just announcing that we're, we've arrived and we have a complete piece that's ready to go but we don't want to be the ones who make all those big artistic decisions about what that big set might be and how big the cast might end up being and what you might do with the orchestra. We just want to present the material in its purest form. Yeah, that's a very, very good lesson for the kiddies at home who think they can write a screenplay and hand it over to someone and it's going to be made exactly how they wrote it in their vision. No, you're writing something for a producer or a director to then do their vision with it. That's why we write things. You have to be able to let go of your work mm-hmm. at one point. Uh, now, just one quick question about Rumi, because we'll move on. Um, what was the most surprising fact that you found out about him during this process? Um, oh, that's a really good question. I think that the, the thing that I've, I'm most fascinated by is how... His reputation is so rooted in God and religion mm-hmm. and how he has been a, a sort of adopted as this religious figure. I think I think it's just fascinating how this man who has become such a symbol of, uh, of religion and uh, uh, the Sufism and this uh, sort of spiritual sect of Islam, yeah, there's so much about him that's so much more rooted in humanity than that. He, he's been sort of almost deified over the centuries. But what's so interesting about this story is it's all about humanity. And, you know, the relationship between Rumi and Shams um, has never really been explored in a human way. Um, they're sort of put on this pedestal of, as these untouchable figures who you can't sort of discuss properly. But the reality is that they were real men with real feelings and real emotions. And we, we all know that poets write from places of human experience of of love and loss and pain and suffering and that's that's why we we wanted to tell this story i think and and not only not only with rumi and shams but with their families and the people or not shams doesn't have a family shams is a lone wolf but rumi when shams arrives in rumi's life rumi is on his second marriage he has kids he has a wife who he's deeply in love with and it's like examining what what is the price of fame in a a medieval sense you know the the rise to the top if you're going to build a legacy that lasts 800 years what what sort of falls by the wayside along the way and and there are there are many purists out there who will see our show and think why is it why is it so little of it about religion and so much of it about them as normal people but but that but that's kind of why we're doing it we're doing it to sort of humanize them and make them three-dimensional real people and and we are as i said earlier we are looking at the origin of this part of Rumi's life we, you know that the, the show takes place Rumi's between like the ages of 36 and 38 well that's where we are oh shit yeah that's where we are we better hurry so, up if we want to be deities, deities. Yeah, <laughs> you've yeah. got to meet your champs in the next couple of years uh the guy who's going to change your life and make you go and write for the, for the rest of your years uh and leave your legacy behind I can't even find a guy to buy me dinner Nadim anyways <laughs> <laughs> You will eventually have to leave because all things are temporary. Because all men leave me, you mean? Anyways, um, yeah. Sorry, we'll, we'll yeah. stop going on about my love yeah, life. No, that's it's no, that's that's one of the things that that um, fascinated me is uh, you know once you sort of realise just how revered and like I said deified he is, and then to go, hang on, this is not exactly. a Bible story. This is not some guy who may yeah. or may not have existed. You know, it's all there. There's his writings, mm-hmm. there's Sherm's writings, there's the history is all there. He, he's a real dude, mm-hmm. a family and kids yeah. and a father and, you know, and yeah, it's it's really 
freaking cool. Um, just like I said, just fascinating learning about this entire thing. I hadn't seen anything about, and you're just completely blind to the the, the whole movement, really. Yeah. yeah, and you know what's so what's so great about hearing that Evan is that you know it's kind of it's kind of the point of why we write these um these Middle Eastern stories and put them on the stage because you know in in the Middle East or in Persia in this case these people are so well known that it blows their mind that there are people who don't know them but mm. the reality is that the West has a very blinkered and narrow perception of what goes on in the Middle East and that's because of what we see on the news and what we see you know what, what we see in, in in TV drama and film um you know I I remember when Homeland was was a hit show and there's a there's a scene there's a scene um in Homeland that's, that's allegedly set on a road in Beirut which is where my family live and they shot this in a desert in Iraq um, right. and, and then you've got you've got then you've got millions of Americans and Europeans sitting there going, oh, okay, so that's what Lebanon's like. Wow, okay. And they don't question it, they just absorb this. Mm, and they absorb yeah. the they absorb the terrorist stories, they absorb the refugee stories, they absorb all the problematic things. But no one's mm. no no one is kind of going, let's just celebrate this unreal history of of literature and culture and dance and music and just so much beauty from the from the Middle East that all the religions came from the Middle East the alphabet came from the Middle East like so much there that that the West just through no fault of their own have never been exposed to so we're just we're trying to sort of go here here have a have a look at the life story of this person and if it makes you want to go and do a bit of research or read a few poems then we've we've kind of done our job and and it's so great to hear that that's the experience you had and it, and, it, and it, you kind of went as you said you went down that rabbit hole and I remember that when I went down my first roomy rabbit hole however many years ago and and the same with Gibran on Broken Wings you just sort of you can't you can't believe you don't know more about these people already when you're exposed to them mm. and, and and bringing back to your point of uh the you know the perception of that region um when I first I've gone okay uh, Rumi is a, is it Sufi? Sufi, yeah. Is that how you pronounce yeah. it? Yeah. Sufi. And you Google, well, then I then Googled Sufi Muslim on image search. Don't. <laughs> you end up with this whack job Iranian sect that perform all sorts of crazy acts that would not be any part of the Quran or Rumi's teachings. And and that's the first result is, is these horrible images of, of, yeah yeah i'm not even gonna go into it it's it's really not part of it at all yeah. i don't know how they even have that name but yeah that's the first thing that comes up is you know look at this weird stuff look at this horrible shit and I'm like, that's no that's how not can it. you that's... sorry how can you not believe they share that name when the nazis co-opted the buddhist symbol yeah 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 true yeah but it's it's like even now like modern day these are these whack job groups that have just twisted the whole theme and yeah. and but that's the first result is the, the annoying thing if you if you google sufi you don't end up with images of rumi you know you end up with the extreme side of i don't know who they follow that's yeah. just i didn't yeah. i saw a lot of comments of going this is not what rumi is about what's interesting about that is um you know you were saying earlier about you were talking about the uh, the theory of rumi's rumi's followers um, and whether they were annoyed um, with, with Champ's arrival, and what's what's interesting is that we we, as as you did, we did all our research, and we 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 saw all the different threads of what might have happened uh, at this time. And what we try and do in the show is we try and have a bit of both flavors. We sort of have Champ's leaving of his own free will to allow Rumi to pro progress in life as an individual, but we also have the element of the jealous uh, loyal followers who were there before 
who then lose their leader uh, to one man. And what the reason the reason we wanted mm. to put that in is because we we think that this very topic you're now discussing is a real problem with all religions in the world in general. That no matter what the teachings actually say, there is a risk of becoming very right wing, very traditionalist to the point where you are aggressive and violent in your opinion to anyone who disagrees. And we see this play out. We see this play out mm. in the, in the world all day, every day you're correct as long as you agree with me sort of thing you know yeah, yeah. um and and you know the reality is that, that Rumi was a very revered teacher in a very wealthy city Konya is a very wealthy was a very wealthy place in the 13th century and everyone there would have then seen this guy this nomad come in from Damascus in rags this guy who's got rid of his earthly possessions uh to to sort of put himself closer to God and they will have been absolutely baffled by the fact that Rumi's invited this guy into his, his home uh, and 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 they would there will have been some jealousy and there will have been some uh, worry um, but of course the true followers of Rumi the true followers of the, the branch of Islam that they kind of developed at the time know how much Rumi without Shams is nothing um, Shams was the mentor Shams was the guide and they were the yin and yang to one another. They were complete opposites, but the, the whole that they created is the reason there is an 800-year legacy. That's, that's like our show, the yin and the yang. <laughs> the yin and the yang. Yes. Very good. <laughs> Sorry. Yes. <laughs> I didn't mean to interrupt today. <laughs> I, I had to throw it in one there. One day I'll have to dump your ass so you can flourish. Me? No. <laughs> I just want to say that on Spotify, okay, I'm used to seeing old white dudes when it comes to movie composers that I listen to all the time. Um, but it was really, really lovely seeing Dana's eyes because she's got this beautiful blue picture of mm -hmm. her that's it's sort of her eyes mm -hmm. and she's got really stunning eyes. So, girlfriend, I'm jealous of you too. <laughs> Bloody hell, you guys. Um, yeah, so Evan, quickly your score because we'll move on. Well, uh, yeah, I, I did give this a bit of thought. Like I said, I, did, I have listened to this. Um, I did listen to it again after yeah. doing my research and and sort of went oh of course this all makes sense and i was able to you know pick out the part periods of his life and and yeah it really helps yeah. to know the story you know and listening to it again so i've listened to it a good five That's times right. all the wow. way through um gosh well we had lots of time yeah. with it mm -hmm. so and and for a long time i was wondering what the hell what am i going to write about that's me every week i know and it's always comes together in the last minute <laughs> But yeah, the, yeah. The more I listen to it, the more you like it, and knowing the story helps to separate the songs into yeah. into periods of his life. Um, I thought about what score, and I reckon I'm going to have to go four point nine. Wow! Because I'm not yet a, a perfect man. Book of Mormon got six out of five, so yeah. <laughs> I'll take four point nine out of five. I'll take I'll take it. <laughs> <It's fabulous. laughs> Press Frozen also got a five. Yeah, Frozen got a five. Yeah. Yeah, because my, my scope of musicals was very small at the time. I was like, well, I've only heard three musicals and this was the best, you know. That is true. Anyways, Rumi has it. We're going to throw to an ad break. We'll be back in a moment. G'day, listeners. Aaron here. While you're topping up your coffees, did you know that you can support our show and go on a fantastically scary adventure at the same time? 
go to www.thetonistontales.com forward slash bookstore to grab your copy of The Toniston Tales, a darkly funny Aussie trilogy about a young boy who rescues injured animals in his spare time and the roller coaster ride he's taken on by a literal fish out of water. Written by me, the village idiot of Thrash and Treasure, you'll come to love Toniston Turnbull and the dozens of wacky characters that he meets along the way. And here is a sneak peek. Crack, thud, the human trips over the uneven ground as the Twanimal blows out the lantern. Watch your step, Kapoor says a little too late. Why did you put the light out? Bollycosh, an open flame near hay bales? And here I thought you were smart, sir. Toniston agrees with how silly he must have sounded. What are we doing out here? The boy asks as they blindly walk around the side of the house, where they're greeted by giant shadows rising up above them. Unable to properly see in the pitch-black darkness, Toniston presumes they are the three hay bales. He looks around. The plains are vast and the spotlights out in the distance, now a purple colour, seem to be too far away to bring any real light to them. They do, however, look very pretty dancing on the rippling oceanic sky. Stand back, the silhouetted cub paw warns with his gruff but friendly voice, clearly able to see in the darkness better than the human who had constantly refused to eat his carrots. Grab your copy of The Toniston Tales from thetonistontales.com forward slash bookstore today. Hooroo! Alrighty, we listen to Thrush and Treasure. I'm Aaron, that's Evan, and we are joined by another Western... Actually, no, you're go- probably going to air before Hadley, so you're going to be our first West End heartthrob. Sorry, Dave Musket, but you were yeah. born in Australia, so you're an Australian heartthrob there. Anyways, um, <laughs> now, when I was writing... Uh, so did I introduce Dave, or did I just say heartthrob and then stop? Nadim Naman. Yeah. Uh, Anyways, okay, so when I was writing my novels, The Toniston Tales, I would sit down and I would listen to a piece of music by Pierre-Henri called Psych Rock or Psyche Rock, depends on how bogan you are. Uh, Did you have a, or do you have a go-to place, um, so physically or mentally, in order to then get into that frame of mind to create? Mm. It's a really good question. My... My writing process always starts with lyrics. Yep. Um, and in the case of in the case of Rumi, um, that that came mostly from his poetry. Um, so the fun the fun the fun way in to the writing sessions was always knowing what song I was going to tackle next, uh, and what that song what the purpose of that song was in the show. What what narrative was that driving forward? What character was that developing? Um, what was what did we want to put across? What messages did we want to put across in that song? And then returning to Rumi's poetry mm-hmm. and finding finding the the sort of the gems, finding the, the verses and the phrases and those incredible mm-hmm. quotes he has, mm-hmm. um, just finding the right ones to suit that point of the story. And I tend to find that I, I I'll, I'll create what I call like a lyric uh, mood board where I will just type two, three sides of A4 of, of images and phrases um, that, that I think will, will somehow have a place in this story. And then I'll sit, to, sit at the piano and just by repeating the, repeating the poetry out loud 
find that like a pattern or a rhythm or a tempo begins to form in my head mm-hmm. and then it, then and then I'll literally just go okay I'm now going to pick a key and just play and and see see what happens yeah. and and eventually maybe only 10% of those lyrics from that mood board will get used but yeah I I, I find it all if, if it comes from the words and it comes from um thinking thinking about what the story needs to be during this song mm-hmm. uh, that's the easiest way in i don't really get on very well by sitting down at the piano and trying to come up with a tune first yeah. um i just end up that's when i get writer's block and i just realize that i'm rehashing something i wrote eight years ago and start emotionally abuse the piano yeah it comes yeah. <laughs> comes from the words every time listening to it uh listening back to it this morning um after doing you know, uh, I was literally listening to Rumi's poetry. You know, there's there's plenty of YouTube of people just reading it, um, mm. and then listening back to it again. And I, I can hear all the bits and the references to mirrors. And um, yeah, it's, it's it, it it really helps to know the story and know Rumi, and then listen to it. And, and yeah, I can hear it. You've you've littered the poetry all the way through it. It's, re- it's very cool. That's great to yeah. hear. Okay, now what's your least favorite warm up song? Oh wow. Uh... Oh, my least favorite warm-up song is Bella Signora. Okay, how does that go? Could you enlighten us? I'm not not paying your fee to perform, so it's a warm-up. Uh, yeah, <laughs> it's 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 just this, it's this. It's not even a song. It's just like this really annoying vocal exercise that musical directors get us to do before the show every night. Um, they they assume everyone enjoys singing it, but you have to put on this cod operatic voice. And go, Bella Signora, and just go up the scale and down the scale for like eight minutes. And even if you're in a show where that that isn't the vocal style or anything, it's just sort of they they all just do it and they love playing it. They love playing the arpeggios. And then they t- and then they do the worst thing ever and say, okay, add a harmony, guys. And you're in a room with like twenty musical theatre singers all trying to outdo each other with yeah. their harmonies, and it's not it's not great. Yes, been there many times. <laughs> You only need to walk in a room with five of us and we start doing that. <laughs> yes. Uh, okay, now, um, I'm glad that was a, a classical answer because you do have a very classical voice, a very gorgeous voice for a man. And I'm on record on this show saying I don't actually like men singers because um, I love my divas. <laughs> I love my women. Like it's, it's that's, totally fair. That's it. I mean, I'm half of them. Like, you know, Madonna, Britney can't sing, but that's fine. They got the songs. Now, have you ever thought of dressing up with the full beard and uh, looking homeless and then going out on the street and pulling a Susan Boyle or a Paul Potts on everyone and just blowing them away, thinking here's some homeless uh, guy that just for shits and giggles. Um, do you know what? I I have to an extent. Yeah, I I, <laughs> I have because because sometimes I sometimes I'm walking through London, I, I walk past a busker who is phenomenally talented. And I just think, God, how lucky am I that I don't have to be doing this and I actually am doing this for a career and they're they're on the street doing it. But then there are other times I walk through through central London and I walk past the, the most awful busker I've ever seen who can't play, can't sing. Can't, and then I, but I look in their, I look in their hat and they've got like 60 quid. And I just think all those times I've been unemployed and stressed about where my next paycheck's coming from. Maybe I should have just done this. Maybe I should have just put a coat on and gone and sung in the streets. And, you know, if I'd made 30 quid a day and done that every day for a week, I'd have made more money than I have done on some acting jobs so so it's um it's a funny one yeah like it, it's the sort of thing that I think requires a lot of guts 
but yeah, maybe 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 I should have done. Yeah. Why not? Why not? <laughs> Why not? Just for so, a so laugh. Aaron, are, are you implying that that all those uh, TikToks of you know, amazing homeless man belts out. They're all set Beethoven. up. They're all set up. Of course they are. And I'm also implying that he looks homeless with his beard. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. Because I wrote that question before I knew you had a beard. So anyways, what's one role you're eager to play after you turn 50, but nothing from bloody Sweeney Todd? Because that's the answer that everyone freaking gives with their dream roles. No Sweeney Todd. Love it. But um, no. After 50... After fifty, I would I, I'd like I'd really like to play um, Henry Higgins in My Fair Lady. Yeah, because cool. because because he's because he's just a bit of an asshole. Um, yeah. <laughs> he, he's 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 an antihero, isn't he? He's like he's 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 charming and he's clever and he's witty, but he's got some awful awful points of view. And I did the show quite recently, um, and I and I sat there quite a lot of it, thinking, God, I can't believe that that this hasn't become a more controversial show than it has, you know, some, you know how some, like we revisit things and people go, oh, this is a bit sexist now. This is a bit racist now. We can't do this anymore. My Fair Lady is full of that. And most yeah, of it from, I agree. from Higgins. Um, but he's, so he's becoming a bit more of a villainous character than he used to be. Uh, and I think that would be quite a challenge to, to find a way of doing that without having everyone in the audience hate you. I completely agree with that. And I'm, have you worked with? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Me too. Because I was like 1999, 2000. Yeah. Yeah. Because I, I no ill feelings or anything, but she was tweeting out when she was doing My Fair Lady that Eliza Doolittle is a feminist icon for all time. And I'm like, honey, that poster is literally a man with a marionette puppet of a woman. There is mm-hmm. nothing feminist about that show at all. It is Grease is pretty much a parody of that in the end yeah. where she, you know, becomes the, the thing that the man wants her to become. Um, yeah. yeah, no, so I completely agree on that. She sort of threatens to stand on her own two feet for a very short period of time and has some empowering moments, but then five minutes later she walks back into his house. Yeah. She, the last image we see in the show is that she couldn't walk away. She comes back. Um so women out there you don't have to become classy you can sound illiterate to be a woman it does not matter at all anyways we'll move on from that one because i'm going to get in trouble for that um we'll censor any names because obviously i'm gonna have to cut a little bit out of that when was the last time you wanted to walk out of a show what a great question i know right (laughs) the last time i wanted to walk out of a show and did you because that's one thing to want to. It's another thing to... Uh... Oh, God, this has happened to me loads of times. But the reason it's a hard question is because of COVID. So it's like, yeah. I haven't actually seen very much for two years. So I'm trying, to, I'm trying to remember. I did... The last time I wanted to walk out of a show was when I was in uh, I was in Athens doing Phantom of the Opera. And the, the producers invited us to the press night of their other production that season, which was Chicago. And we all were like, oh, of course we'll go because these are our bosses. They're inviting us to their other show um, and we're going to go and see it. But we didn't know that it was going to be in Greek at the time. Okay. We thought it was going to be in English because we were doing Phantom in English. Yeah. And they were like, oh, by the way, in Greece, everything's a little bit late. Like, so if it doesn't start on time, don't worry about it. It's just the celebrities that take their time arriving, blah, blah, blah. And we're thinking like we might start 10 minutes late. Uh, but no, this show started at about quarter to 11 at night. Oh, shit. <laughs> 
it's like a two and a half hour musical and we had just done a 10 10 till six rehearsal day and it was in greek so i didn't understand a word was being said and just the whole thing was like i needed matchsticks to keep my eyes open Mm -hmm. but it wasn't because the show was bad the show was probably amazing but i was just sat there and it was just going straight over my head that's all right i don't need to to censor that that's cool was it the same (laughs) production with the the band on stage and no costumes no sets and you're still paying fucking premium no, price no okay good it was a full production oh, good. It was a full oh, production good. there were there was there was a lot going on oh, yeah good. that and that was part of the that was part that was part of the madness of it because i was like if it, if it was the same as the one i'd seen in london at least i'd be able to like know where we are and what's going on it was very very bright and and, and vivid and, and and huge in 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 scale and so it was just bonkers it was just completely bonkers i've never seen i've never seen a musical in another language before which is a bit ridiculous like maybe i should have but i listen to a lot of foreign cast recordings yeah because i a lot of times the interpretations of the music the the reorchestrations and the sound of it might be darker or it might be funkier or just different in the ways yeah. and yeah. Um, yeah, I'd love to learn foreign languages. Uh, yeah, no, Chicago's one that with that skimpy everything, I'm not paying for that. Give me something that does have sets and, and a full show. Costumes. No fucking scaffolding. Anyways, that's it. What's been your experience? Because obviously you've done Phantom of the Opera a couple of times in different countries. Did you do yeah. the Royal Albert Hall? I did, yes. Oh, you did. See, we had Hadley on the show. Hadley, um, that at that point in time, yeah. I was the I was the Raoul understudy at, in the London production, uh-huh. and this is the most tenuous claim to fame of all time. Hadley is wearing all of my costumes in that. Oh wow! In that um, DVD because we're the same size, the same height, and the same just general sizing. So so <laughs> he came up to me on day one and was like, "You Nadine?" I was like, "Yeah." He said, "Oh, I'm wearing all your costumes. Thanks for that." <laughs> and that was how we met. And, 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 then, and then we and then we became quite quite uh we, we became pals and, and uh, he's a great guy and now you've both ended up on this show whoa that's some, well, that's some x-files twilight zone shit right there 10 years on oh wow was that 10 years ago oh goodness me we we're all getting 10 old years yeah okay now um on that you've done phantom what's been your experience with standing ovations because obviously west end audiences are a little bit more cynical than broadway audiences mm. who will stand up yeah at anything <laughs> Standing ovations happen mostly when you're working on a new show. I, it ha- I think it happens less here with the kind of the long running hits because I think in an, in a in a, in a new show the audience will be filled with true theatre lovers. You won't have you won't have the tourist crowds. You won't have the families who are just coming in for a night out. You'll have the people who are there because they really want to be there. Yeah. So I find that the theatre crowds are more likely to stand up here. But then people are quite like sheep, so if you're in Her Majesty's doing Phantom on a Friday night and three people in the front row decide they're going to stand up, then generally other people go, like, oh, well, we should probably stand up then. Yeah. So there's a sort of, it happens, but it's it's definitely not like the American version where they just go crazy. Here it's more like, oh, I suppose we should probably stand up. It's very British. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I suppose we should. Yeah, yeah. yeah I suppose <laughs> we probably should. You know, I, know, I have yeah. to stand up now because um, uh, the person behind me won't be able to see, so they'll stand up too and it'll all be fine. We'll all just stand and politely clap. It's, it's, it's more like that. That's the thing. It's politely clapping. It's, it's so regimental yeah. now, in my opinion. Hmm. I've seen it happen that many times. And it's not nothing 
and look, I've, we've asked this question to many performers and I don't think anyone's been offended by it because I'm basically saying, did you feel you deserved your standing ovation when you got it? Uh, but all of them, I don't need to ask that because all of them will say that when they've gotten it, they've known when they've earned it because they felt it. Yeah. They felt that the energy exactly. was there. They've, they felt it on the stage with their cast members. They felt it in their body, in their voice. Um, so I disagree with David Zippel when he says that actors aren't the best uh, example or, or the best judge of that because you do feel that energy on the stage, but you also feel that lack of energy, that regimental, they're standing up and politely clapping because they feel that that's what they have to do. No, you don't have to. That's their, an audience, uh, sorry, an actor's reward is the applause, yeah. right? When they've exceeded their own expectations and given that performance that makes an audience member stand up and scream and smack their hands together so hard that's when they walk away going i fucking rock tonight and that's what makes yeah. them feel better not not a, a, a cliche one sorry go no <laughs> i was just gonna say i think some i think sometimes the other thing that actors need to do is recognize when a large part of the standing ovation is because the piece is amazing um, yeah. I think it's very, it's very easy. Uh, it's very, it's happened to me. I've been in, I've been in shows where I know the performance has been far from the best, yeah. but the piece, the piece is so strong that the audience will still stand because they can't believe how they've been moved by it or how they've laughed. Uh, if it's a comedy or, it, well, there you go. There's one. Come from away. Yeah. I'll say it. It certainly is. It's one of those where you just end up at the end of it. Yeah, yeah you're blown away. And it and it wouldn't and it wouldn't matter who's in the cast. Yeah. It wouldn't matter whether whether they have that kind of voice or that kind of voice or whether they can belt that note or belt that note. Like nobody cares. It's about the whole thing. Yeah. And I and I in a, and in a bizarre way, I think Phantom is a show mm. like that as well. I think I think Phantom is a show where it, there's no reliance on a particular actor. We are all kind of replaceable parts in a in a in a bigger machine. And I think that you could literally you could barely sing as the Phantom but you'd still make people cry and you'd still have people going crazy at the end because the way that role is written, yeah. it just works that way. Yeah. And and there are, there, there are some shows where actors, I think, are receiving a standing ovation, but they know deep down it's because they're just lucky to be in a really good show. Yeah. yeah. And I look, I think it will have the inverse effect on it, but it leads to what advice would you give to younger performers in terms of filtering that ego from confidence? Really good question. I think the difference between the two is that ego is kind of contradictory because of what the word means. But I actually think ego is about other people. Um, your ego is about comparing yourself to other people, wanting to outdo other people, wanting to be the best in a context. Mm -hmm. Whereas confidence is about how you perceive yourself and what you are good at and what you can bring to the table that other people can't. So I think that one is, e I think ego is, is, is more selfish because it's about wanting to beat others. Whereas confidence is about, these are the things that make me an individual and these are the ways I'm not like other people. And I need to embrace that because there's only one of me. Yeah. And th those individualities are gonna be the things that get you a job. So um, yeah, I think, I think it's about that. I think it's about be confident in yourself because you're your own product and you're the only thing that's going to land you work in this business. Whereas if you spend your time obsessing over beating the competition or outdoing that person or that person, um, it's not, it's not going to be as pleasant an experience and people can, people can see through that. Um, 
it's it's also ego is a funny one in our business because so often we play roles that have been played by like 50 other people or 100 other people mm-hmm. and so you have to think of it as it's it's a team game it's a team effort like yeah. i've i've yeah i've been very lucky i've 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 played raul for many years in phantom in different productions but so have 100 other guys you know we're like passing on the baton um looking after a character and giving our interpretation for a while but there are some actors who will be like this is my role now and i'm the definitive christine or phantom or raul or whatever it is and it doesn't work like that because you'll leave one day and then someone else will play it so so i think people just need to focus on enjoying the moment and and giving giving their all to something without worrying too much about other people it's hard it's not always easy yeah. but but i think i think it's got to, you've got to try at least that was um that was a really astute answer and uh, your parents must like you <laughs> Uh, speaking of parents, if you ever want to do a parent trap swap, I'd be happy not doing the marathon. Okay. Anyways, Panto season is coming up. So which iconic pantomime dame would you like to play one day? And can I write one with you one day? Because you guys can write music. I can write comedy. Yeah. So I would like to write a pantomime with someone who is actually going to write music and not tell me that they're going to and they don't deliver to the five people <laughs> out in the world who won't be listening to this. There you go. I um <laughs> I'd love to do a panto and I love to do a panto with original songs because over here that's quite a rare occurrence like everyone just you know steals the pop songs and the musical songs and you just know have original songs and jokes jokes yes so yeah. let's let's change the game up Nadim yeah um oh I don't which dame would I like to play it's a really good question this is not a question for our American listeners yeah sorry guys probably have no idea what we're talking about <laughs> I'm I'm going. What's a panto? <laughs> Pantomime. Like how's that different? behind you? It's like they're fairy tales, and it's typically done at Christmas time. Yeah. It's audience interaction. They're very silly and over the top. Men play women. Women play men. It's like theatre of the absurd. Right. It's it's like I think Punch and Judy for some reason that pops into my head. What one? Punch and Judy. Yeah, the the puppets stems from that sort of area. Yeah, so they're so popular over here because yeah. they're because for, for many children and 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 families they're kind of like a way into the theatre world. It's like you know you might as as a five or six year old kid you go and see a panto at Christmas and it's the first time you're seeing comedy on stage, live singing on stage, dancing on stage, and that kind of then develops into a love for the full-blown thing but I've, yeah. I've done I've done a couple over the years and they're really hard they're really hard oh, yeah. they're, they're exhausting because it's all so high energy slapstick comedy you've got kids to entertain who are much harsher critics than adults because they'll tell you if they're bored they'll tell you if something's not funny they won't politely clap and laugh so yeah it's a totally different art form I think I'd like to play Jack's mother in Jack and the Beanstalk yeah I think that I think that would be the one because uh, then you get to do all the comedy with daisy the cow as well which is quite a common one over here yeah two two actors in a cow costume come on like that's that's what you yeah. want right <laughs> that's it I, i'm so thankful I, I never had to play a cow or any animal though i did have to play seaweed not better at all anyways no i'm <laughs> kidding um, okay so after roomy what rumors can we spread? One, well, one one thing I can tell you is that something's going to be announced very soon about Broken Wings. Yeah. Which we obviously haven't been focusing on for the last year because of COVID and because it was our roomy. We decided to make it our roomy time to get roomy finished. Thankfully, some amazing producers who have been interested in the show for a couple of years have kind of revisited Broken Wings and picked up that energy again after the, the pandemic 
break. So yeah, there's going to be an announcement soon about that show having uh, a next chapter, um, which is fantastic awesome. because it's sort of yep. it's the first and it's the first time it's another producer looking after it and doing what we were discussing earlier. You know, handing the baby over, hand handing it over to someone else yep. to to put their vision on the piece. Um, yeah, and I've that's what I've always wanted as a writer to reach that point where I'm not pushing everything myself. So yeah, watch this space. Should be news quite soon. Awesome. Now, Evan, do you have any questions? Because we we've kept Nadim long enough. Yeah, I think the only one that really kept popping into my head is just just getting this whole thing off the ground and and how you managed to snag the guitar orchestra to yeah. to to play for you. I mean, none of this is none of this is cheap yeah. or easy. And I know, you know, it's your second, you know, second full production. So, you know, you have done this before, but just, yeah, getting it off the ground in during yeah. lockdowns and COVID and, you know, how, how did you manage to snag such world-class musicians? It's a really good question. And the answer, short version of the answer is that we, we come from a region where no one else is doing what we do. So when we are creating these pieces of theatre, it's very easy for us to get, to get support from sort of it's it's not as high up as like government or state or politicians but they the arts are treated in a very different way in the middle east because they just don't really have an arts industry in the same way we do so if you if you find if there is an organization like the qatar philharmonic orchestra and dana is the only person in qatar writing a musical the people who the people who fund the orchestra are very happy to make that connection because it benefits everybody it gives the orchestra a reason to play with a west end cast it gives the composer an opportunity to have her musical recorded by the national orchestra who are otherwise sitting at home during covid not doing anything and the whole thing is like a good adv advertisement for what's possible in the middle east where, uh, in the arts scene because you know the the, yeah. the the people the qatar philharmonic orchestra which is um part of the qatar foundation their whole thing is that they want people from around the world to go there and use that orchestra and record shows there record film scores there do concerts there to increase the artistic output of the region i guess what i'm trying to say is if we were writing shows that were set in new york or europe about people falling in love and writing rom-coms and stuff we'd be like how many how many musicals are there set in america or europe in new york or yeah. paris or london like, yeah. we'd be at the bottom of a queue of about 50 musicals and people would be going well what makes your one special whereas nobody else is doing the kind of the, the niche area mm. that we're writing about so yeah that's been our way in that authentic sound yeah yeah see i was thinking it was possibly even uh, a case of going oh well you know we're doing the story of rumi yeah and they're sitting there going sign us up it's literally it's a question i mean like don't i mean we do go through long processes of thinking we've got funding and sponsorship and people pulling out because they don't really care that much about the arts. They, they're, they're still, you know, they're still always in the Middle East going to prioritise construction and cars and uh, tourism and, and these other things. We're still quite low down the pecking order. So sometimes it does go wrong and you think you've got some funding and then you have to start from scratch and get those pitch documents made again and go and meet with other people. Um, but eventually there is always someone who believes in it because no one else is doing it. And, and, and the idea of putting Gibran or Rumi or people like them on the stage and presenting our culture in a positive way uh, in the West is seen as quite an attractive yeah. uh, thing mm. to get involved in. So I think the, me the, the message to anyone who, who is thinking of writing a musical and wants to get an album made and all that sort of stuff is write something that no one else is writing about 
and write it in a way that no one else yeah. is doing it. And then you're not going to be in a yes. queue. You're not going to then be waiting yeah. for your time to break through all the others, you know? Exactly. Like I keep saying on this show, you do not need someone else to pave the path for you. Do it. Bingo. Just go out and do it. I like, just go out and do it kids. And, and, and Dana, there, there isn't a whole line of female Qatari composers she is the first she totally. went out and did it and that is admirable yeah. in itself that is trailblazing i think a lot of people are investing too much in what's come before them just go out and do it just do it 100 percent. you don't need sorry yeah i think that's the the best yeah. lesson every artist can give yeah. to younger people is to just do it and, the, and, the, and that's why we did the album that's why we did album first yes. because it's like if it if it doesn't if it, if the show doesn't happen at least you still made something you still yeah. you, you still you you have a record you you got everyone in the mm. studio you gave middle eastern musicians and and artists employment um you created something and and then if the show doesn't happen it might happen in 10 years time because there's yeah. an album someone in 10 years might go oh I want to put that on its feet or the next musical that you write because everyone is is a practice so you get better and better each time totally exactly with everything you write everything you do yeah so the, the, i think that's this really illustrated how opposite Rumi and death clock are um where <laughs> <laughs> where you know death clock is literally one dude by himself in a room writing uh the whole thing himself if it fails it doesn't get off the ground he's only really disappointed one person Whereas, you know, you're on the yeah. side of, you've got a whole orchestra in Qatar. And then I assume you're saying with the staging now, you've got a you know, possibly a much smaller orchestra, but you know, another orchestra yeah. has to then learn that and rehearse that. And there's man yeah. hours and there's hundreds of people involved in going yeah. from recording the album to staging it. Yeah. So yeah, if it, you know, exactly. if it doesn't get off the ground, there's the, the pressure of the hundreds of people involved. Um, I'm sorry, it's all on you. <laughs> yeah, yeah you're, you're completely right yeah that's it so you've got to just embrace embrace each step of the journey and and take yeah. it take it for what it is without worrying too much about the end game because especially well come on we've all just lived through a pandemic as well where it's like you can do all the work you want you can spend all the money that you have and you can have everything lined up but then out of the blue it's just like sorry it's cancelled it's not happening anymore mm. so i think i think that that that's another reason why we wanted to, to do the album too because that felt like safe it felt like we can do this even if covid goes on for years and years and years like we can still go to the studio and record an album even if we have to go in one at a time we can still tell a story we can still put this music out there um yeah so yeah one step at a time is the other thing that i have to keep telling myself like just is, enjoy it yeah, yeah there are no guarantees also there's no definitive edition of anything no, like, exactly. You know, so the the CD that is out there now that'll sound different when it goes out on stage in this uh, semi concert, and then if you do get a full scale production, there'll be changes made again, and it'll keep growing. And I I really do wish it all the best. Thank and you. wish you all the best for your career. And thank you so much for joining us. I've had I've had a really great time. Yeah, good. I hope the the puns weren't too awful. <laughs> they were great. Thank you. Yeah. And I, <laughs> well, what was that one you said in your intro? Something, something Persian. Personality. 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 I was like, oh my god. Yeah. You did. Anyways, where can people find you on the socials? Uh, so they can find me on Twitter, um, uh, which is just my name, Nadim Naman, and 
uh, yep. Instagram and Nadim Naman actor, one word. Um, awesome. I, I have a YouTube channel, but I don't really, I haven't uploaded anything onto it for a couple of years. A few things on there. Researching your episode and I put on that, it said Phantom Medley, so I didn't really oh, yeah. know what to expect, what songs it would be. Halfway through it, you switched over to music of the night and I didn't realize it. I just burst into tears. I'm like, fuck this guy. Look, this is fucking beautiful. <laughs> this is fucking gorgeous. Oh my God. And I'm so jealous. I'm, I'm sorry I made you cry. It's slash glad it did the job. <laughs> Anyways, no, that's far too personal for the show. So I will cut that out. And um, obviously we've got Rumi coming up on the West End for two nights in a semi-concert version. So we'll put this out a little bit earlier. Yeah. I think tickets on sale now. Tickets, Make sure, tickets yes, tickets are on, tickets sale, are on sale. Yeah. Yes, please go yeah. and then message us on Twitter at Thrash and Treasure and tell us what you thought about it because we are very too mighty jealous that all these shows, all these guests we have on this show, neither me or Evan can go and see because I'm in lockdown and he lives in the middle of fucking nowhere. So... That, uh, <laughs> Helps everything, but anyways, yeah, we're, we're I am we are so far away. COVID hasn't got here yet. No, that's true. Oh. Whereas here, it's eating us alive. Anyways, for you at home, mm-hmm. you take care, and we shall see you next tea time. Hooroo! Thank you, thank you very much. I had a really great time. <laughs>